Well, good morning, church, and good morning all of you here, here, and all of you who are at home, who are out there, who are still joining us from the internet um, until you're able to come back with us. It's, again, it's just great every week to see, like, a couple new, more people able to come and come back and to see, to see that because we've missed so many of your beautiful, ruddy faces. Um, I, uh, I'm going to get to interpreting what ruddy means, and believe me, it's my favorite part of the passage. Um, if you have a Bible, well, no, you already read it. Okay, so we are in the beginning of David, and this is the thing that is very exciting if you are familiar with the kings in the Old Testament, because when you start talking about Israel having a king, uh, it starts to feel like, when is David going to show up? We, we remember David. We know about David. He's supposed to be this great, good king, right? Well, um, uh, what we end up finding out is that so much uh, happens with Saul. And we're at this point now in Israel's journey and having a king where what we're seeing is we're seeing now a shift that's going to happen from one king to another and why that shift happens the way it does. So uh, God has come to Samuel, the priest, and has said to him uh, to stop grieving over Saul not being king anymore. God made it pretty clear um, prior to this that Saul is no longer going to be the king of Israel, that he has basically failed. He's failed to be a good enough king to be able to really represent God and the Israelite people and to lead them the way he's supposed to. And so Samuel knows this, and he's told Saul, and he's really bummed out about it. Now, um, it's hard, you would imagine, to be like Samuel in this situation. Uh, this guy is so deeply invested in what God has called him to do. He anointed Saul. He was the one communicating on God's behalf to Saul. He was rooting for Saul. And then God says to him, now we're going to do a new thing. And so he has to be able to grieve appropriately, but then get back up and say, okay, now what does the future of Israel look like? And you can tell this is hard for him. But God says, nonetheless, to Samuel, I want you to get up and go and anoint a new king. I have someone else in mind who will be a king. And so Samuel rightfully is worried. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's not going to look very good if I'm going out anointing new kings while there's currently a king and he's a big, strong guy like Saul. So uh, God says to him, well, here's a way you can do it discreetly. Go and find this man, Jesse of Bethlehem, and say, as the priest, that you want to make a sacrifice. And when you go to make sacrifices as a priest, you usually need help. It's kind of a big process. And so you find people in the local area, which he does, when the elders of the city come and are like, hey, is everything good? Is everything okay? All right, we are here for a good reason. That's good. We're all happy. This is all good. Let's keep this good. He says, I would want some people to help me make this sacrifice. I want to consecrate, which means it's any time you take something and you set it apart for a holy use, a holy purpose. And so he says, I want to consecrate some people to come and help me with this. And so that gives him the ability to be around Jesse and his sons and kind of see them and get to know them. And then he presumes that God is going to make it clear to him which one should be king. So Jesse begins uh, to uh, present his sons. You begin to see his sons. And of course, the first obvious option would be his oldest son. He is the biggest, he is the oldest, he's the most accomplished, he is the best looking, it seems. And so Samuel just presumes, okay, God, is this the one? 
And it is at that point when God says something that tells us that everything is now going to be very different than it has been up till this point. And it is in this verse, and this verse is really the heart of this anointing in this passage, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, the Bible tells us here that a new thing is now going to happen, and it's going to be very different from what people expect and from what had happened before. A new king, a man that is going to be described now in contrast to Saul. Saul is the one that the people would choose for themselves. God actually chooses Saul himself. God chooses Saul. We keep saying he gets a bad rap because it's easy to make him out to just be this Saul bad guy. No, God chooses Saul because Saul represents perfectly the most ideal version of what the people would want for a king. And God says to them, I'm going to give you the best version of what you believe is going to fix things and make things better. And I'm going to do that to show you that the best version of what you want is not going to fix things and make them better. You need something entirely new and different. He proves something in this that is a hard thing for us to accept, and it is this. It is that our perfect version of my solution, the perfect version of my solution, is still worse than God's solution. You see, our tendency is absolutely to say, God, what we need is to be able to find a way to do what the world is doing, what these people over here are doing. But if we can do it well, if we could do it perfectly, then God, you can do anything. So if you can just give us a better version of a king, that's going to fix it. How hard is it for any person, any one of us, to get down on our knees and to say to God, God, I want your solution, not, God, I've got a great solution. I want you to make it even better. God, we're a great team, you and me, right? I figure out the answer, you make it happen. You're God, you can make it happen perfectly. It should work out great. This is one of the most common mistakes that we make, is that we believe that if we can take a thing and if we can have God make it happen perfectly, because in our mind we go, no, 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 the reason my solution isn't working over here is because I don't have all the right parts, all the right things. We need all the right pieces to fall into place and then it will work. God, here's where you come in. Your will be done. But what God says is, uh, listen, even the best version of your solution is still not going to be as good as my solution. And this is true. God instead says, even a king like Saul, this man who is exactly what you want, a mighty, brave, imposing, good-hearted, fierce man, the best of us, is not going to cut it. Instead, my solution is going to look very different. In fact, you're going to be surprised at how much it contrasts. This is what Samuel's finding, because Samuel sees the next Saul standing in front of him. And he says, all right, God, here we go. It sounds like God's probably found a better family, maybe a better, you know, a be, you know better, better line. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, and I'm sure that God, he's going to get it right this time, you know. And so 
Here we go, Saul number two, 2.0, the updated, improved version of Saul. And God says, no, things are going to be totally different. So he then begins to, uh, and what God says to him is he says to him that, uh, that his way is going to be very different. Why is it that even the best version of our solution isn't going to work? Is because there's something in us that usually when we're trying to come up with our solution is going to get it just off enough that it's not going to work at all. Uh, I have a dog named Barry, and Barry uh, is very much wants to not be in my house. Uh, he wants to get away from our house as much as he can. I do believe that Barry loves us as much as a dog can. He seems to. He always comes slinking back with his tail between his legs. But my dog is constantly trying to run away from my home. I could add to that my children are also constantly trying to run away from my home. Um, in fact, um, my, my dog, uh, if he could have his way, apparently would like to go live with every UPS driver uh, because he gets right up in the truck and, um, and he just has a good time. He, uh, he wants to be in every neighbor's house and backyard other than mine. Uh, and ultimately, what it ends up looking like when you come to my house and knock on the door and I open it is that I'm holding a dog prisoner and I won't let him escape. I mean, so much of like having little kids and having dogs could come across to someone who doesn't understand our culture as like, hey, maybe you should let that captive thing go that's trying to escape from your house, clearly. Uh, no, 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 he wants to be here. No, 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 they want to be here. They're supposed to be here. I'm just holding them in with my leg, trying to keep them from running away, even though it seems like they're trying to save their life and they want to get away from me because I'm making it miserable. Our tendency is constantly to go away to get away, to run away from God, and then get just far enough away and go, okay, God, let's talk about how we can make this work, okay? Because my solution, my best solution, is always going to be a reflection of my desire, my need to do things my way. You see, we have this thing within us where we basically don't like depending on God, we want to do it uh, ourselves. We want to show God, even in a love for God and a desire to show him that we're good enough and we can do enough. We say, God, um, I, I, I want to be independent of you. I believe I can do it now. I believe I'm mature enough. I believe I figured enough out. You don't want me to be one of those needy, whiny, dependent people that are always needing you for everything, right? So I'm going to be better than that. I'm more mature than that. I'm more self-reliant than that. Now let's talk about how you can make this reality happen. And the whole time, you're like standing out in the middle of the cul-de-sac, and he's just like, Are you, would you just come inside? Would you just come inside, and we can figure out how to do this where you and I are a part of the same family? This is why our solution is never going to work. And we'll be surprised to find that when God does allow it to happen, allow it to work, and even when things go perfectly according to our plan, it might satisfy something in us, but it doesn't necessarily solve what we're trying to solve. We see this every political election. We see this with families. We see this with so many different things. We see our tendency to fall back in this place of going, God, would you just make my thing happen? I'm so sure in my infinite wisdom that if you did that, everything would be better. And instead, what God wants for his people to do is to say, God, what is your solution here? I mean, you know, when we're honest, how hard is it for us to get on our knees and to say to God, not make this thing happen, make this person go away, deal with this problem in my life, but to say instead, God, what is your solution here? 
What is it that you want here? Then we can talk about how to have that happen. God is interested in a very different kind of king. He is interested in somebody who is going to be ultimately an indicator to us, a big flashing light neon arrow sign that points us to Jesus, who is going to be the one who will really be able to save us one day. Will a worldly, earthly king save us? No. Saul's proven that, and it didn't need to be proven, but the people, but God did it for the people anyway. He now has something new that he wants to do, and so he brings these guys, and he walks them out, and he, and he one by one, until Saul, Samuel gets to um, this boy, David, who's out in the field. Now, first of all, before we even get to David, we go, God's statement is a pretty big one. This very clear, simple statement that man looks at the outward appearance. God says, I don't see as you see. You are limited to seeing each other on the outward appearance, and I see what's in the heart. Now, that's a pretty big statement to make, right? I mean, we'd like to think that we're not that simple, right? That we're not that basic, that, that this statement is not a true one, that man looks at the outward appearance. We go, I sp- you spend your whole life being told not to judge a book by its cover, being told that what really matters about a person is what's on the inside of them. I mean, we are a culture and a society that is absolutely committed to the idea of being more than just a bunch of people who like what we see on the outside. And yet, somehow we find ourselves living in a world in which we are all truly putting much more on the outward appearance of things. Judging others by their outward appearance, not just by their appearance, but by their actions, right? Because David wasn't just a young boy who's being judged by, um, by, his, by his age, he's, by his size. He's being judged by his size, by his age, which means the things that he's accomplished or not accomplished. The firstborn in a family would be the obvious choice. Why? Because he's done so much. He's done more than any of the other kids. He's proven himself in some way, right? And he's probably going to be the biggest, That makes sense. Man looks on the outward appearance. Usually the best thing that we can come up with is to say, oh no, I get that this isn't all that should matter, but it's also what should matter, right? Yeah, what's on the inside counts, but we can't see what's on the inside. So don't judge a book by its cover, but the cover draws you to the book, right? You see a good cover, you walk across the room, you go pick up the book. And that's okay, right? To judge by that, to be drawn to that, to look to that. And yet God looks for someone who is not the book that you would walk across the room to pick up. Why on earth would he do that? How could he do that? We want to believe so bad that we don't do this. We want to believe so bad that we don't look on the outward appearance, but the truth is this is absolutely the way that we operate as people. And if we didn't operate this way, then we wouldn't live in a world that looks the way it does. If we truly did believe something other than this, if we truly did believe that appearance wasn't the most important thing, then we would all probably be living our lives pretty differently. We'd be making choices and decisions about people pretty differently. I mean, look at social media. Social media is only getting more popular, not less popular. Even though social media is by nature outward appearance. 
In fact, the aspects of social media that get increasingly more popular are the ones that give you the ability to control more what you put out and to put out smaller pieces of yourself. The idea of, oh, I like this new platform because I just do this and I can control it completely and then it perfectly puts out what I want. The, the reality is that social media doesn't give us the ability to be really ourselves in any way. It is actually, by nature, a curated, uh, controlled version of ourselves that people will see. And generally speaking, the more people are obsessed with social media, the more obsessed they are with the outward. I have proof of this, and this is amazing, okay? Let's use... Uh, We'll just use, we're going to use straight data here, okay? And, and, and you can look this up, although I don't recommend it because it'll make you lose your faith in humanity even more than you maybe already have. If you were to look up, uh, let's just take husbands, for example. Husbands, we're going to pick on you, okay? The number one hashtag on Instagram with the word husband in it, this is a good one. We're going to start in a good place here. Most common Instagram hashtag, hashtag best husband ever. Best husband ever. Best husband ever. That is the most common hashtag on Instagram with the word husband in it. And yet, the most, num- the most common, the most searched Google question, the most searched thing on Google with the word husband in it, why is my husband such a jerk? And it gets worse too. There's, like, there's, there's a lot of them and none of them are great. Uh, I mean, another one, like number three is, why is my husband so mean to our son? Is like number three. Kind of interesting. But now, you could believe that the world is filled with two kinds of people. Uh, uh, people with best husbands ever and people with husbands who are jerks. And that all the Instagram people don't use Google and all the Google people don't know what Instagram is. But I don't think that's the case. I think what this shows us is really kind of the way we are which is uh, even when what's going on on the inside is ugly and uncomfortable and hard, our efforts to fix it by just even projecting something better. I mean, is it really much of a stretch for us to presume that a lot of people in America, probably most people in America, are trying to simply project something better than what they're really experiencing? are trying to project a better version, are trying to project something better, if nothing else, in hopes that that's the first step of maybe things being better, if I just am positive about this thing. I, it doesn't seem like a surprise to me, to because I've known many people who uh, project one thing online and are a completely different thing in person. All, what I mean to say with this is simply the fact that um, man does judge things based on outward appearance. Not just by how someone looks, by the accomplishments that they have, by the reputation. Studies have been done and they completely are backed up by data that show that people who are better looking, people who are taller, uh, these people do better. In fields of business and the world and life that shouldn't really directly be connected. I'm not talking about athletics here. I'm talking about things like business and working with people and, and, and this is a fact about the way that we operate because we believe that there is something about us that the better we are on the inside, the more you'll see it on the outside. But it's also because it's very hard for us to work on and focus on what's on the inside. 
There's nothing more dangerous than a leader who cares more about how people see them than about how God sees them. And a leader who's going to be worried about their reputation with others when asked by God to do something that could at all cost them in that area, they've now had to take on one of the hardest tasks. Man looks at the inward appearance, but what God says to Samuel, uh, man looks at the outward appearance, that the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart of a person, and what he sees in the heart of a person is what he is most concerned with. Now, Proverbs tells us that the heart is like a river, and out it flows the stream of life, which means your heart will indicate, it will play out in the way that you live, in the things that you do. There isn't a separation between these two things in terms of your actions, but... The Lord looks on the heart of a person, and this is something that's very hard for us to wrap our minds around. Is there anybody who doesn't, first of all, we don't really have a problem with this because is, like, none of, like, is there anybody who doesn't believe that like, really they have a pretty decent heart, a pretty good heart? It's pretty hard for us to believe that there's, that, that, that let's just say that you are a Christian and you are trying to follow God in any way. You read about David, a man who is a man after God's heart. Well, I'm at church. I want to be living for God. I, I, I like God, so I am now a man after God's heart. I mean, couldn't it be that simple? We like the idea of a man after God's heart because we go, yeah, that's how I would want to be, and all I have to do is try to be a person who, you know, cares about things God cares about, and I'm a person after his heart. Uh, there's very few people I've met who willingly acknowledge that there's something maybe going on with their heart, that there's something wrong with their heart that causes them to not be a person who is as after God's heart as they want. In fact, we will blame anything but our heart when things start to fall apart. I was talking to a man right before Ellie and I got engaged. I was telling him I was about to ask Ellie to marry me. And he had recently gotten divorced after being married for a long time. Uh, he had been unfaithful. His marriage had fallen apart. And his advice to me was, don't get married because marriage is no good. He said, marriage is a bad idea and people shouldn't do it. He went on to say that the worst thing that he thinks that he did in his own marriage was being honest with his wife about his infidelity. He said it just didn't really help anything. It just made everything worse. Is it possible that that's not entirely unique to that person? The ability to say when everything around you is falling apart because of your actions, instead of saying, there's something wrong with me, saying marriage is the problem. Honesty is the problem. And yet this is something that we do so easily, right? As we go through lives, we become disillusioned as we start to say, man, that fails you, that lets you down, that's no good, that person won't work, that thing won't work, I am losing faith in everything. Rather than say, maybe there's a common denominator in all these things in my life that might also be messing things up. And that thing, that thing might have something to do with my heart. You see, there's something about our heart that is hard for us to fully understand if we're not willing to see the brokenness of it. 
God is able to see past the exterior of things, what we present to the world, to the interior of a person, and this is what he cares about most. But when God tells us, when he describes this looking into a heart, when David is described as a man who is after God's heart, there's something that is meant by that, and it's really, really important to not get it wrong. First of all, when you talk about the heart in the Bible, we'll just start in the Old Testament. When you talk about the heart in the Old Testament, it's really clear that it has a very big role. The heart, this word that's being used, it means the center of who you are. It's the essence of who you are. It really is. The, this is the core of a person, their, their soul, if you want, or you know, however you want to put it. Now, in the Old Testament, God originally gives his people the law, and the very basis of the law is this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. He says, You shall love God with everything in your heart. And so we read this and we say, Good. I want to do that. You do that. Here's what we're going to do, guys. We want to be like David. You'll never believe what he does next week when we talk about him. He's awesome. So let's go out there and let's do this. Let's love God with our hearts, all of our heart. Because what the world needs is it needs people who are trying harder, really trying, trying harder to love God and everybody with their whole heart. And if we can go out and be a people who do that, we're going to change the world. This is the heart of the law. And the law did something when you started to follow it. And you may have experienced it yourself. God, is, uh, he, he, he was practical. And so he wanted the people to have ways of reminding themselves about the importance of the law and why it would be hard for them to follow it. So we read this when it talks about clothing. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which are, you are inclined to whore after. Yikes. God says to the people to put a tassel on their robe to remind them to follow the law. Why? Because your heart won't want to. Because your eyes will be unfaithful and so will your heart. God is saying to them, the moment you start trying, guess what? You're going to be aware of the fact, if you're at all self-aware, and I'm certainly aware of it watching you, that there's something wrong with your heart. You can't really do it. If we all go out there and say, let's be the people who do this better than anyone, we're going to become a group of people who either fake it, because we can't really do it perfectly, or we're going to become a group of people who are, uh, and, and that's hypocrisy, and that's a lot of religious people. Or we're going to become a group of people who just lower and lower and lower our standard of what it means to really love with our heart, to really love God with all of our heart. And what we'll do is we'll change what that means, right? We'll say, well, I know what God wants is really this, and I know what God wants is really that, and he doesn't want us to be trying so hard and feeling so bad this way. So I think what he really wants, we should change it to being this thing. Because there's something about our heart that we just can't do it. So when the people sin and they need to learn about what to do with that, how to respond in that, what do they do in a relationship with God when it turns out they can't love him with their heart? They can't be so pure in heart in the way that they need to be. God says this to them. He says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. It says God has to do something to you. Circumcised, which is the cutting away of flesh in a painful way, so that you can do this. Your heart doesn't work, and you need heart surgery. And if you let him operate on you, it will be painful, and you have to acknowledge that it doesn't work to begin with. But if you let him do that, you then can receive a new heart. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. If you want to truly do this thing, to love God with your whole heart, to be a person who's after God's heart, then you need a new heart in order to do it. And what happens then is exactly what's described with David. And it is really, really interesting that the translators interpret it. They translate it after God's heart. There's a lot of other ways that you can interpret the word that's used here. Um, and yet they say after God's heart because it really is a person who is, who is seeking something. Basically, what God sees in David that is good is that David is a young man who does not want his own heart, but he is seeking after God's. He says, I want what he wants, not I'm so good in what I want and God's going to make me king. To be a person after God's heart is to be a person who says his heart is the goal, not mine. The Lord looks on the heart but this isn't just a matter of saying, good, then I want to be good in my heart, so I'm going to go try. What it leads us to is a place of saying, I need help if I'm going to actually be good in my heart. We don't seem to need that much help to, to live hypocritically. We seem to need help to actually do it for real. What we read about as a result of this is that Samuel then takes the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel anoints him. He blesses him with oil. And he does this, and as a result of it, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. What makes him great is not all the things that he can accomplish. What makes him great is that he seeks the Lord, and the Holy Spirit is what will accomplish things. What we read about after that is that the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord torments him. Ultimately, this leads to bringing David in to play, um, to play music for him. And as a result of that, David becomes a part of his, he becomes his armor bearer and David's now there as a, res, there as a part of, of the inner workings of the life of the king. And what we begin to see is the degradation of a man who God has taken his spirit from and we begin to see what it looks like for uh, this young man, David, to live with the Spirit in him. This entire thing, this whole, uh, this whole chapter is about perspective. This whole chapter is about a perspective that is different from what you would normally think. It is, it is possible for us to look at a thing, the same thing, and see it totally differently from one another especially if we have different data, different information. 
a couple of weeks ago in the Easter service, on Easter Sunday, our kids, for OCC kids, did this thing called Dig. And Dig was this really fun thing where um, they were part of what they did. It wasn't all what they did, although they would have if we let them, was we had these big sandboxes, and the kids were digging through the sandboxes and finding treasures and precious stones and shark teeth and stuff like that. And my kids became absolutely obsessed with these kinds of, with like gems and stuff like that afterwards. And so, well, the next day we were going camping with uh, Pastor Matt and his family. And, uh, and so on our way to the camp, campground, we stopped in Silverton. And we stopped in Silverton and we hung out there. And there's a store in Silverton that sells rocks. It's called I've Got Rocks in My Head. And um, it's a pretty great store if you're a kid who's recently become obsessed with rocks and gems and minerals. So we go to the store and it's a, it's a little nerve wracking. I mean, my kids don't do great in stores with lots of glass shelves and heavy things that can break and be thrown and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and so we walk in a little, you know, eh, not sure. But the guy who runs it, he's clear. He's an older guy. He's been doing this for a long time. He's very knowledgeable and he's really good with kids. So he's like, bring him in and I'll show him every single thing. So he shows everybody everything. And we say to the kids, you can each buy one thing. So they each buy their rock. And then I was like, I kind of want to get something too because I'm basically uh, a child. And so I was really trying to find something that, honestly, this would be totally honest, I was trying to find something that looked like kryptonite because I thought that would be cool. Um, but I couldn't find that. And so I found on this little shelf a little box and it had these little dark, kind of oily looking rocks in it. And it said, pieces from meteorite from China. And I was like, what? And what it said was that a meteorite had landed in China, and this is, these are all these little parts of it. And, and you had to buy them by weight. They weren't even like every other one. It just said like all the ones in there, $4, all the ones in here, $6,000 or whatever. And this one was just like by the gram. And so I took one that I thought was like small enough that it wouldn't be expensive, but big enough that it'd be like, you can see what it is. And I gave it to the guy and he puts on the little scale. It's five bucks. And I was like, sweet, five bucks. I have a piece of a meteorite from China. This is amazing. And kind of hoping like, you know, see if it does anything, you know, um, for me or, or takes away power or anything like that. Um, and so we, we took our things and we went to the campground and we saw the Eckharts. And of course, I run up to Matt. I run up to Matt, you know, no, I, not like that. But I go up to Matt and, and I said, oh, you, we went to the store. It was so cool. And I was like, and check this out. I was like, I was like, I got this rock and um, I bought this from this guy. It's a piece of a meteorite from China, and as I'm saying this to you, I'm realizing how bad it sounds, and it may not be true. And I was like, shoot. Uh, no, seriously though, like it was a legitimate store. The guy clearly invested a lot into it. This would be a huge scam if he was like doing all of it just to sell this one pile of fake rocks that were not really what he said they were to try to make a little bit of money, you know. But he was just like, I'm not buying this at all. And I was like, no, 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 really. I didn't just spend $5 buying a rock from a guy who sells rocks to dumb people, right? But honestly, I don't really show the rock to anybody. Uh, I, 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 I thought I would. I thought it would be an exciting thing. But it turns out that every time I kind of think about doing it, I'm like, yeah, there just isn't a way to do this without it being like, Look at what I bought from a guy who ripped me off and I'm a child. And not even one who's smart enough to get something that looks cool, right? This is either a, a meteorite from space that landed in China and may, might be making me slightly better at basketball, I'm not sure. Or it's just a piece of gravel that the guy picks up in the parking lot and he's like, eh, if business isn't ever going well, I just do more of the meteorite rocks and that usually kind of covers me for the month. You can look at the very same thing and regard, like whether it is one or another are very different things. 
And this is the way the perspective works. The way the perspective works is that you will look at a thing and see in it no value whatsoever, but someone from a different perspective will see something completely different. We all kind of like this idea that we can look at things from different perspectives. In fact, we like it because it gives us freedom and acknowledge maybe staying away from this idea of truth, right? A thing is what it is. No, 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 better than that. It's not is what it is. It's what it is to you. It's what it is from your perspective. This whole chapter is about perspective. It is about the people of God believing that if they could just have a king who was the best king, that that would fix their problems. And God showing his people that their perspective is completely off. We are getting to see God's preference here. The people don't know anything about this yet. We are getting to see Samuel having to wrestle with, wait, what God? What is it? What do you want? And what it reveals is even his perspective and how limited it is. Any uh, historian or Old Testament scholar, any, any Bible interpreter will, will, of any weight will tell you that like one of the worst things that we can do is open up the Bible, especially the Old Testament, pull out a, a hero and say, God gave us this person so that we could all leave here today and be this person. Because if that was true, if the point of David is for us to all go out and be David, if the point of it is to go face our giants or something, then the Bible would be about us. And the Bible isn't about us. The Bible is about God. And what David is, is he is a signpost pointing to the real solution that God will bring his people. And that real solution is in Jesus. Because the fact is, if you recognize the state of your heart, then you need a new one. And you can't get that without Jesus. That what we need is not a king who is what the world would say a good king looks like. What we need is a king who can do what Jesus did and give us a way to really be saved. What we need is a king not who will give us the best life that we can construct, the perfect circumstances. We need a king who will give us life because we're dying. This is what Jesus does. But in order for us to see the value of it, to see how much we need it, our perspective has to change. Otherwise, it just seems worthless to us. If you're here today and you have never chosen to follow Jesus, you are here today to choose to follow Jesus. That's why God has you here today. And the most foolish thing that you could do is walk out of here today and not choose that because no matter how hard you try to be a person who is really, really good in the ways that matter internally, you will not be able to do it. Not the way that God commands us to. Not the way that really, truly is any different from any other person out there trying to be a good person. The worst thing that you could do would be to walk out of here today and to say, okay, I'll think about that. I'll consider that. Maybe I'll try a little bit more to not judge books by their cover, not judge people. Maybe I'll get off social media. It seems like that's what he was saying. David is a signpost to one thing, Jesus, who's going to come and is going to fix everything. And because of what we celebrated on Easter, can give us new life through resurrection. Let's pray. Father, if there is anyone here this morning who, well, there's lots of us here in different places as we hear this, God. Um, for many of us, there is a constant need to be reminded that Christians are not called 
to just look for Christian versions of what the world wants. That our solutions are not the same as your solutions. That you are not here to just give us uh, the perfect set of circumstances so we can show you how good we can be. That you are here to give us your solution, God. Would you help us to ask the question, honestly, God, not a question, but to make the request to you, God, would your will be done and to truly mean it? And God, if there is anyone here who has been around the idea of Jesus, has been around the church and around religion, has found themselves here today, has even grown up in this, and has honestly thought that really the goal is to just do good things, to be a good person, you've probably then brought a person here who is, who is aware of the fact that they can't be good. That ultimately, uh, our eyes wander, our hearts are unfaithful. Our hearts aren't even consistent with themselves. To follow our heart is to chase after things that conflict with each other all the time. And God, if there is anyone here in that place, and if you are here in that place, would you just repeat this prayer after me? God, I know that the problems are not out there. They are not with politics. They are not with governments. They are not with viruses. They are not with groups of people. They are not with generations. They are not with technology. That the problem is one that exists in my heart. And God, my heart is not sufficient. It is not up to the task. And so I pray that you would forgive me of my sin, that I acknowledge to you that I need a new heart. I acknowledge to you that I need work on this. And God, would you forgive me of my sins? Would you cleanse me from them? Would you give me a new heart? Place it in my chest. God, I commit to following you every day from this point on for the rest of my life, not because I will be perfect at following you, but because you are perfect and because you will never fail me, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.